Welcome to the Faith Assembly Podcast. We're so glad that you joined us today. It is our desire at Faith to help you connect, grow, and go in your walk with God. We hope you're encouraged by this message from Pastor Steve. Well, if you have your Bible with you, and I trust that you do, uh, your Bible, some electronic device whereby you can access the Scriptures, I want to invite you to turn with me to the Epistle of Jude. And if you're wondering where that is, go all the way to the back, to the book of Revelation, and then turn back one page, because that's all that the entire letter of Jude is, is one page in your Bible. Um, and you will find that letter there it's in, in its entirety. It's divided up into 25 verses. And while you're still turning there, I just want to mention, first of all, I want to say thank you to all of you who came out for the Unite prayer and worship event this past Wednesday evening. That was an amazing time in the Lord, and we are so delighted that you were all here with us, and we encourage all of you who perhaps weren't to come back, be looking for those on the calendar, and uh, come back and join your heart and your faith with ours as we seek the face of the Lord. The Lord has said that he would be found by people that seek him, and we believe that we're going to find him, and he's going to show us great and mighty things. Amen? Praise the Lord. Well, in last week's message, um, there was a challenge issued to order for us to order our lives in accordance with the word of the Lord and thereby find victory and maturity in our spiritual walks. Now, I don't know what your concept of Christianity and Christian faith is, but basically, the hearing and responding in kind to the word of the Lord is indeed the essence of faith. God has spoken, we hear, we move in accordance. God asks, we trust, and in accordance with what he has asked, we move. And as I reflected on that message, the Lord led me to this little epistle of Jude, and I was impressed that I should give attention to Jude's instructions here to the church because the idea that we hear and apply the word of God as an absolute in our lives may seem like an elementary understanding of what it means to be a true person of faith because after all, Jesus did say, if you love me, keep my commandments. If you love me, keep my commandments. And the thing that troubled my heart is the fact that there are many in today's world who simply claim the title of Christian, but really the word of the Lord has no direct bearing on their lifestyle or in their life choices whatsoever. In fact, it may even be in some circumstances that people have embraced things. Now these are people who claim the name of Jesus, who claim Christianity as their title, but they've embraced things in their worldview that are even contrary to the principles of Scripture. And if, you, if you've got your spot there in Jude, we're going to begin a two-part message from that letter that we've entitled, Contending for the Faith. And we're going to speak here for a couple of weeks about contending for the faith. Now, if you've got your spot there in Jude, I want you to look with me, beginning in verse 3. And Jude's beginning to address the church, and he says, Dear friends... I had been eagerly planning to write to you about the salvation that we all share. Let me just say this to you at the onset of this message this morning, that as we have come into this house today, 
though we may come in and we may bear a variance of labels that the world has ascribed to us, there is one thing that we all should hold common and there's one thing around which we all agree and we can all coalesce. Outside of those walls, the world tries to label us Democrat, Republican, Independent, Conservative, Liberal, whatever, Black, White, Hispanic, Asian, however that falls out. But the Word says that if we are in Christ Jesus, there is neither bond nor free, Jew nor Greek, male or female, we're all one. There's one purpose that we come into this place and that is that we have been washed by the blood of Jesus. We have been redeemed and those of us who were strangers and foreigners have now been made citizens together of the household of God and of his kingdom. Come on somebody. And Jude continues here and he says, but now I find that I must write about something else. And I'm urging you to defend the faith that God has entrusted once for all time to his holy people. Jude will define here in a moment why it is that he was writing to the church to defend the faith. But perhaps our first question here is, that we may want to ask is, why was Jude intent to write to them concerning their common salvation? Our assumption may well be that Jude was originally going to write to address the discord that had begun to rise up in the church. When he uses that word common salvation here, he's stating his intention to write to them about the commonalities in which they share as believers. Perhaps he was originally going to instruct them that there should be no divisions in the body of Christ concerning peripheral things. Sometimes throughout Christendom there can be great divisions that arise over secondary issues. You know, how often or exactly in what manner we observe the Lord's table. Who baptized who? Exactly where in the point of a church service is it deemed appropriate to receive the offering? All of these things. And we see Paul writing to the Corinthian church in a similar manner in 1 Corinthians chapter 1 beginning in verse 10. And he's writing to the church about the word that he's received back that there are divisions among them over such things. Like which one baptized which one? He said it doesn't make any difference who baptized who. What matters is that we're all one in Christ. And he, he was intent to write to them about these things. And this was obviously what he intended to be a unifying letter for the church that drew, drew their attention away from the things that they didn't agree on back towards the common points upon which they all agreed. And it appears that as Jude was contemplating these issues that he begins to realize that the root of this discord was much deeper than just whether or not they agreed on every single fine point of doctrine. What Jude has found and what has been revealed to him by the Spirit is this, is that a terrible, terrible cancer has slipped into the church and it's far worse than the finer points of interpretation. Much of the discord here that Jude's going to address seems to have been the result of false teachings that were finding their way into the church. Now the same gospel that Jude was going to write to remind them of, he's now writing to urge them to defend that truth. And he says that the truth of the gospel was delivered to them once for all time. 
Now, church, the issue today is that you and I live in an enlightened generation. We live among people and we dwell among people that feel that they have reached some sense of enlightenment that now all of a sudden the gospel message should be or quite possibly could be altered because of their understanding of things. But I want to tell you here, Jude is quick to clarify that God delivered this message once for all time. The gospel that we should be preaching and the gospel to which we should adhere in the 21st century is the same gospel that was delivered by the mouth of the Lord Jesus Christ himself in the first and was taught by the apostles thereafter. It is not changed. God's word is forever settled in heaven. It's not changed any at all. In verse 4, Jude continues here and he says, I say this to you because some ungodly people have wormed their way into your churches, saying that God's marvelous grace allows us to live immoral lives. The condemnation of such people was recorded long ago, for they have denied our only master and Lord Jesus Christ. He says they have wormed their way in. They've crept in unaware, some translations say. But what it means is this, that ever so subtly, nobody came in with a big heresy. Nobody came in with this big controversial issue. But little by little, piece by piece, precept by precept, now the false teachers have wormed their way, ever so subtly made their way into the church and found some degree of credibility among God's people. And I'm speaking to you in a cultural climate today where major denominations are splitting over great moral issues. They're not arguing about points of liturgy. They're arguing about clearly defined moral attributes as prescribed in the word of God. That is the climate and the culture in which you and I are living every single day. Now I told the first service and I'll tell you this. My job here, this may not be the most sensational message that you've ever heard. Because my job here is not to entertain you. My job is to tell you the truth. And their mission, the mission of those false teachers that worm their way, that creep in unawares, is to turn the grace of God into lasciviousness. The NIV renders this to mean that they were teaching the grace of God as a license for immorality. In other words, it's exactly what Paul suggests in Romans there about chapters 5 and 6 when he says, but because grace abounds, then should I go on sinning? And then he answers his own rhetorical question and says, absolutely not. That's not what the grace of God means to our lives. Yet there are people even today that will tell you because of the grace of God, you need to let the desires of your flesh, whatever you want to do, if it feels good, do it. Just let it go unchecked and unchallenged in your life because God's grace is sufficient to cover it. Now there is a sufficiency of grace to cover the greatest sin in your life. Understand that. 
Don't don't misinterpret what I'm saying here this morning. But can I tell you something? The grace of God is not a license for lawlessness. The grace of God is the power to help you overcome the bondages of your past and to free you to live as a new creation in Christ Jesus. In other words, rather than teaching that because of God's grace, you now have the power over sin, they were and are teaching that because of God's grace, you could sin all you wanted without consequence. Sadly, many are doing this, as I said today, and they're teaching disobedience without consequence. And they say that, you know, and and they're teaching a grace that says anything goes. And the parallel here in in our modern era is that the greatest threat to a unified church is not argument over secondary and tertiary doctrinal differences, but the greatest threat to to the body of Christ today is its own reluctance to identify and confront sinful behavior. We fear, we fear of being labeled legalistic, intolerant or maybe bigoted or appearing too dogmatic and argumentative and thereby we might lose favor with the masses. Look, I've got to preach the word because the word declares of itself that it's quick and it's powerful and it's sharper than any two-edged sword. I can tell you whatever I want to do to fill this room. And all that you'll have is the moment of temporal encouragement as you leave this place. But if the word of God is taught, you will have the encouragement of an eternal life-giving word on the inside of you. And I'm not afraid to tell you the truth for fear that this room is going to be empty because I believe that through the power of the Holy Spirit and the truth of the word, we'll see lives changed and we'll see this place full. But we're afraid Christian teachers want to be too popular. Christian parents want to be too cool. And the lives are being destroyed by unchecked sinful behaviors. And the result of our silence has given rise to false teachers just like the one in Jude's day. And where we're saying nothing at all, false prophets are having plenty to say. In their report, the grace of God is given, but there's no requirement of turning from the life of sinfulness and submission to the Lordship of Jesus Christ. According to their doctrine, there's no repercussion of our sinful behavior. Having been freed from the curse of sin, we're now freed to continue in the sinful behavior at will, living only to satisfy the lusts of our flesh. And then Jude offers this reminder and he says, listen, before you get sucked into this vortex of lies, I want you to be reminded of a few things. Though you already know this, I want to remind you, Jude says, that the Lord at one time delivered his people out of Egypt, but later destroyed those who did not believe. We see that in the in this narratives of the Exodus. You can read in Exodus and Numbers in the Old Testament about God's people being delivered, yet they rebelled against God. They were idolaters. They were complainers. They were murmurers. In fact, the earth actually opened up and swallowed one whole rebellious family. But we read about that in the Old Testament, and he says he later destroyed those who did not believe. 
and the angels who didn't keep their positions of authority but abandoned their proper dwelling. These he has kept in darkness, bound in everlasting chains for judgment on the great day. If you read back through the Old Testament, and I'll explain that here briefly to you, if you read back through the Old Testament, you can find out how Satan became Satan. He was actually an angelic being by the name of Lucifer, and he led the worship in heaven. But one day he said, I will ascend and I will be like the most high God. I'll be equal to him. And he fell. And when he fell in his pride, the word says that he took a third of the heavenly host with him. And that's where demonic beings come from. They're actually fallen angels. And then he continues here and he says, in a similar way, Sodom and Gomorrah and the surrounding towns gave themselves up to sexual immorality and perversion. And they serve as as an example of those who suffered the punishment of eternal fire. Listen, I've heard so many documentaries. If you watch the History Channel, they've got a precious, precious spin on the story of Sodom and Gomorrah. And and they will, by all means possible, have you understand that it was something other than sexual perversion that was going on in that camp. Something more than homosexuality, something different that caused God's judgment to rain down on them. But I'm telling you, Scripture is explicitly clear. It takes a great contortion of the truth to fit their narratives. And I want you to understand something today because the enemy has tried his very, very best and still tries his very best to distort this in the minds of believers. To not agree with sinful actions and tendencies is not to hate the person who is sinning. I'm going to say that one more time. To not agree with sinful actions and tendencies is not the same as hating the person who is sinning. And the world paints a picture of love for you and I that exclusively equates to tolerance. It suggests that if you truly love people, you're going to accept them. And to truly love people, you do accept them. Except that by the world's definition of accept them, what is truly meant is that you will never challenge their rejection of God's authority in their lives. What's truly meant is that you will accept as legitimate all of their life's choices, even if it's completely counter to Scripture. The picture of love that the world paints holds true biblical love as being intolerant and bigoted and hateful. And church, that's just not true. That's not the way Jesus loved. Jesus loved the woman at the well. Jesus loved the woman who was brought before him caught in the act of adultery. He didn't condone the action. He didn't condone the sinfulness, but he loved them. And let me tell you about true love. True love does not despise the sinful people, but is heartbroken over sin's dominion in their lives. True love will not allow the people they love to travel the path of destruction without warning. 
How many of your parents, you've, you've, your kids have reached that age where they've, they've got their driver's license and they're heading out for the first time? There's not one of you, I bet, if I was willing to make a wager here, but I don't want to be sinful either, so I'm not doing that. But there's not one of you that hasn't gone and stood by that car window one last time and said to your loved one, listen, just because the light turns green don't mean the people coming from the other way are going to stop because their light is red. You be sure that there's no traffic before you cross the intersection. You look both ways. Don't you be on your device and driving at the same time. Why? Because you love them. You don't want to see harm befall them. You don't want to see them heading down destructive paths or engaging in destructive habits, so you warn them. You love them. It's not, you don't, no, you're not, it's not, I'm going to tell you what, don't you go through that. No. But you warn them because you love them. Many have taken warnings such as these that Jude offers to the church and they've been labeled as hellfire and brimstone messages. And, and maybe he does do that here in referencing the, the account of Sodom and Gomorrah, but understand that the implication is when, when people say that there's some hellfire and brimstone preaching, I kind of cringe just a little bit. Because often the connotation of that kind of warning is that there is no love in these warnings. They're very harsh and hard-hearted. And the further implication is that God himself is just simply vengeful and bloodthirsty. And maybe the manner in which the warning has been issued is a part of the problem. Maybe we have made God sound furious. Maybe the church's warnings have sounded like that we might take pleasure in the very thought that one day sinners will eventually meet their demise through God's judgment. And I've got to add here that it's important what is being heard, not just what's being said. When we're conveying our warning, we've got to understand what's being heard on the other side. And if hate and vengeance is what's being heard, then people will probably respond in a very resistant way. But if the warning is issued with love and they understand that it's for their good, that God gives us these guidelines for living and for life, then maybe they'll be drawn. But I want to tell you this today, church. It is time for a church that realizes that God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whosoever believed in him would not perish but have everlasting life. It's time for that church to stand up and to sound the alarm again and boldly proclaim there's a way that seems right to a man but its end is destruction. Jude is here sounding such a warning. There's no intention to be mean. He's not trying to be nasty or intolerant. He's simply reminding the people, hey, we've seen how this works. We know what the end of this is. And I'm telling you, church, you don't want to go that way. In the same way, Jude continues, these people who claim authority from their dreams live immoral lives, they defy authority, and they scoff at supernatural beings. They live immoral lives, defy authority, and they're blasphemous against God. In Galatians chapter 6, the word of the Lord says this. Do not be deceived. Don't fool yourself. God is not mocked. 
For whatever a man sows, that he will also reap. For he who sows to his flesh will reap corruption, but he who sows to the Spirit will reap of the Spirit everlasting life. And I know sometimes there's a, there's a chasm between what the Word of the Lord says and our understanding. Sometimes the false prophet can make sense. Sometimes the false prophet appeals to our intellect and our understanding. And we say, well, that, that makes sense. I, I can see that. I understand that. Jude continues here and he says, but, but these people scoff at things that they do not understand. And then like unthinking animals, they do whatever their instincts tell them. And so they bring about their own destruction. Listen, there are a lot of people that when they look into the truth of God and they encounter something that rivals their own intellect or their perceptions about life, they refuse to submit or subject their will to God's. They rebuff the word of the Lord and they say things like, I, I can't understand that and, and therefore this truth is not applicable to my life. And with words like these, many will reason and rationalize an exception for themselves or another group of people. But can I tell you something? The prophet Isaiah was clear as the spirit of the Lord spoke through him to say these things to us. That his ways are not our ways. And his thoughts are not our thoughts. His ways, Isaiah says, are so much higher than our ways. His ways are so much higher than our ways. Listen, the instruction of the Lord is not subject to nor validated by our sense of reason. We don't have to be able to figure it out to make God's word right. We don't have to be able to figure it out in order for God's word to be correct. And a lot of people can't understand. In fact, we're cautioned in the word against a reliance on our own understanding. Over and over. Proverbs chapter 3 says this. Trust in the Lord with all your heart. First of all, you trust in the person. Not, not just this positional being, but you trust in the person. What is this person that we're to trust in? He's omniscient. That means he's all-knowing. He, he, he possesses a superior wisdom and intellect. He knows what's good for us and what's not good for us. Trust in, in this person with all your heart and lean not into your own understanding, but in all your ways acknowledge him. Acknowledge him. What does that mean? Well, I'm hearing a word that says it's okay for me to do this thing, but God's word has said that it's not. I can't rationalize what's wrong with that, but I trust in God. And I know that his way is higher than my way, so I'll choose his way. Because as a loving father, I believe that he wants to offer correction in my life, not to keep me from any fun, or anything pleasurable, but to keep me from harm and moreover to keep me from death. Don't rely on your own understanding. Acknowledge the Lord. 
You know, this whole idea of scoffing at things that they don't understand roots all the way back to Genesis chapter 3. In Genesis chapter 3, the serpent entered the garden and he says to Eve, why don't you have some fruit from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil? And Eve says, no, I can't do that. Well, why not? Well, because God has said that in the day I eat thereof, I shall surely die. And the serpent says to her, you shall not surely die. Has God truly said that? I mean, come on now, this don't even make sense. You're going to die just because you eat something. Look at it, it looks good. It's luscious, it's bountiful. Go ahead, get yourself. See, what really is that God knows that the day you eat of that tree, you're going to be like him. Discerning good from evil, you're, you're going to be just like him. He doesn't want that. He wants to control you. He's just a mad tyrant that wants to lord over your life cruelly. man's original sin here in disobeying God by taking fruit from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil suddenly in accordance with the devil's encouragement the man who had previously just regarded the instruction of God as the rule of the land without any question now has for the first time relied on his own sense of reason and has failed miserably and there will be times in our lives when we'll face choices and we'll not always understand why God has instructed in certain ways. But if we'll heed his command, I can promise you this. You'll be better off. You'll be better off whether you understand it or not. There's no contingency on the blessing of God as to whether or not you understand it. The contingency is, did you come in childlike faith? And say, Lord, as we've sang about this morning, I believe that you're a good father. That you've loved me with an extravagant love and I don't believe that you would lead me wrong. So therefore, Lord, I'm going to walk in accordance with your word. I'm going to tune out these voices. I'm not going to be among those in the last days that, are, that have itching ears heaping unto themselves teachers that are just saying what I want to hear. Do you know if you want to find a customized version of the gospel that satisfies you as an individual, you can do that. It may not make it right, but you can find it. Listen, I can't explain to you. I don't know why, I can, I can dig through the scripture and find all the theological precepts, but I can't fully explain or tell you why God has set things up in such a way is to say, hey, if you'll tithe of the first fruit of your increase, if you'll honor me with that, I'll bless you. Bring the tithe into the storehouse so that there may be meat in my house. And God says, try me with this and see will I not open up the windows of heaven and pour out a blessing over your life that you wouldn't be able to contain. And I don't understand how it is mathematically that you can give away 
and live better off the 90% than if you would have kept the whole 100% for yourself. But that's the way it works. I can tell you experientially that that is the way it works. Sometimes if you simply take things at face value in your mind, you may not be able to reason why certain things are the way they are. You may not understand why you shouldn't engage in premarital and extramarital sex. But I can promise you this, that his ways are higher than than your sensual desires. And there's a host of reasons why he's right. And if you're willing to first acknowledge God and secondarily get into his word and find out what he has to say, you'll understand that this is not some some curmudgeon keeping you from something fun. It's a loving father that's trying to protect your life. Loving your enemies and forgiving those who have wronged you makes no sense at all. But do you know recent research has actually shown that people who embrace forgiveness actually live longer and report a higher satisfaction in life? See, God has set boundaries for our lives in a a way not to keep us from anything fun or pleasurable. He has established these boundaries as a loving father to keep us from harm. And moreover, he has established these boundaries to keep us from death. Now, perhaps a little illustration here will help to clarify this truth. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth and all that's in them. And he created this little creature called a fish. And he gave that fish a certain nature. And the nature of that animal is that it can dwell, it can thrive and survive underwater and all is well and good with that fish as long as he moves he is free he is liberated to move in the confines of things that are helpful to his nature he can move all around the water freely as he wants to until Michael gets hold of him then it's over but the second the second that he leaves the environment that is contrary to his nature, he begins to die. And if he remains in that element that's contrary to his created nature, he will surely perish. Also in that same series of scripture, it says, and God said, let us go and make man in our image. And you see, when you and I come to the saving knowledge of Jesus Christ, the word says that we're dead in our trespasses and sins. But it's not us physically that's dead. It's that, it's that nature of God that was breathed into us at creation. That, that, that part of us that bears the image of Almighty God It has been exposed to elements and environments that are not conducive to its living. And the Holy Spirit comes along and does a regenerative work. And and Paul says that in Christ Jesus, we're new creations. 
And maybe the old sinful us could thrive outside of the bounds of the context of the law of God. But the new us, the new creation was created not only to survive, but to thrive in the context of God's laws. And when you and I, and we're free, we are free to move in the bounds of the law. But when we begin to step outside It's not a boundary of confinement, it's a boundary of safety. Because God knows that once we step out of that, we're going to encounter things that are going to be contrary to the nature of God in us. And we're going to begin to die spiritually. Listen, true freedom is a quality of life that comes from living according to our nature. Just as it is the nature of a fish to live in water, it is the nature of the child of God to live according to the word of God. And the moment that we refuse to do so is the moment that we begin to die. Listen. Isaiah chapter 30. If you'll stand with me all over the sanctuary. Isaiah chapter 30 verses 20 and 21 says this. And though the Lord gives you the bread of adversity and the water of affliction, yet your teacher will not hide anymore. But your eyes will constantly behold your teacher and your ears will hear a word behind you saying, this is the way. This is the way. Walk in it. When you turn to the right hand and when you turn to the left. This is the way. Walk in it. Just like that loving parent that cautions their child, hey, that's hot, it's going to burn. That's hard, it's going to leave a mark. Don't do that, you're going to get hurt. You're going to hear that voice of the Holy Spirit saying, listen, that's not conducive. I know it's a popular message. I know it's a popular debate, topic of debate in today's society, but don't do that. It's gonna hurt. It's gonna hurt. It's gonna leave a mark. It's gonna leave a scar. Don't do that. It's not God, God's not angry with us. He just loves us. And let me tell you something today, church. There are so many customized, retrofitted, augmented versions of the gospel floating around today. And I'm not saying that I'm the only preacher of truth this morning, but I'm telling you there are a lot of people who have swallowed the lie of the adversary, hook, line, and sinker. You can find it. Christian television, the radio, the internet. My Lord, just read some scripture commentary on the internet. And you'll be thoroughly confused. I I just say all this today to urge you. Get into your word. Know what God said. It doesn't matter what your opinion is. 
It's what has God said. It doesn't matter if you can understand it or rationalize it. When you stand before the judgment seat of God, he's not going to say, listen, did you understand what I was saying to you? Did it make sense to you? Were you okay with it? Jesus said, if you love me, you keep my commandments. Contend for the faith. Listen, nothing's changed. First century AD until now, nothing's changed. All the way from the writing of, of the Old Testament to today, nothing's changed. God's word is forever settled. We hope you enjoyed this inspirational message today. If you would like more information about Faith Assembly, please visit us on the web at faith-assembly.org. Thanks again for joining us, and we hope you have a blessed day.